Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message, it was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear, please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring tales to terrify and far fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome. Hello and welcome to show 553. I am your host. Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is a big fine and a big dandy, yes! Now I'm recording this a few days early, so if you have popped over to Patreon, which is just fantastic, and I might not have picked it up this week, so just to let you know that before we get into the, all that Patreon stuff. But what's coming to today's show is The Foot Race by John A. Carr. There we go, that's the main fiction. It's narrated by Tom Pipkin. Tom did the the series on Patreon, you know when we did the Robert Silverberg? Tom was the narrator over there. And just for a heads up as well, we are now putting together the John Brunner novel as well. I've got it all recorded and we're just breaking it into segments and getting it all sorted out. How exciting is that? Also today, we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis. <laughs> I was dying to say, Ims there. Well, I've got to keep that. I've got to keep that. So, yes, that's what's coming to today's show. But first up, like I say, it is Patreon. And funny enough, Patreon, in this last week, just if you are interested in it, have sent two emails and they've totally, like, admitted that there is something, you know, there is something wrong with their... Their, their system, there has been these loads, it must have been, you know, right across the board, declines going. Like I say, I had 30 in one week, you know, like one payment. And they're even warning this time, you know, that payments might, you know, be affected, but just hang in there and they're going to try and keep on doing them because the banks aren't recognising, uh, is not recognising Patreon. The other thing is a, a fraudulent, you know, process. So, bloody hell. <laughs> 
Oh man, you know what I mean? There you go. Just when I need. So like I say, I'm recording this early because we're off to Portugal, me and the wife and our our two best friends there. So we're off, we're off to Portugal. When when you listen to this, I'll have the mankini and the, the sun cream oil all lathered on, ladies and, and gentlemen. <laughs> lathered everywhere. <laughs> oh, what a thought, man. Anyway... So, Patreon, like I said, you know, there's just in case you have kind of popped over there and donated, but I just want to say a big thank you to Joe Ramos. Joe has kindly stepped forward and donated as well. So, Joe, thank you so much, lad. Listen, oh, big thank you indeed. So, we'll get into the main fiction. And like I say, it is John A. Carr with a story entitled The Foot Race. John Andrew Carr writes of the strange and the spectacular. He is the author of the Mars War series, with the first novel, Detonation Event, coming out in February 2019. That's that's a hook title there, if ever there was one. He has also written novels and novellas, as John A. Carr. Short stories have appeared in Flame Tree Publishing's The Pirates and Ghosts, Crime and Mystery Anthologies, Dance Macabre, Allergy and Others. He is a North Carolina resident IT worker. An all-round family guy. <laughs> He's an ardent believer in the quote from Carl Van Doren, US Man of Letters. Yes, it's hard to write, but it's harder not to. Oh, I just have a little... We'll just... Oh, that's all you want in life, quotes like that. Like I say, this story is narrated by Mr. Thomas Pipkin. I'll give you the, 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 the correct bio for Thomas. Tom works in IT at the University of Warwick, where he tries to keep on top of Microsoft and all its creations. His life goes like this. Family, cats, PC gaming, total war, voice narration, IT trainer, time poverty. When Tom does get a spell from his grown-up life, he's usually in his loft, lost... Should we say that again? When Tom does get a spell from grown-up life, he's usually in his loft, lost in the fantasy worlds of PC gaming, trying to record his voice without a cat shouting abuse at him. And Tom is just... Tom, you don't hear Tom, you hear the story, and that's what... What a gift, Tom. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... The Foot Race by John A. Carr The conveyor belt curled under the final roller, leaving a twenty-foot gap between the dented cranium and the spindles of death. Artificial gravity added to the moon's naturally weak influence, and together they beckoned the narrow shoulders, the motionless arms, the gutted upper torso. Seven teenagers watched as the body plummeted at a listless angle toward the spinning shredders. Trent Wagner stood to the side of the glass wall, apart from the others. He tore his gaze away seconds after impact, just as the teeth tore into the chest cavity. The screech of rending metal carried through the microphones and echoed in the small operations office, as did the exclamations from the others. Trent winced, but tried to clear it before anyone noticed. Gotta stay frosty. Too late. Riz had seen in the reflection of the glass partition. He turned with his irritatingly confident smile, 
glanced at the younger teen and strode toward him. The others parted from his chosen path. He clapped Trent on the shoulder and laughed knowingly. Trent started to smile, but frowned instead when the others joined with blatantly scornful notes. Come on, let's give Twags here some O2, Riz told them. He's new to the scene. The blood rushed to Trent's face. His inner voice scolded him again for hanging with his sister's friends while she and a crew of other junior pilots took practice runs between the Mars orbiters and the Red Planet. Meanwhile, he was stuck back here like a space ant in the Lunar One Dome network, watching robot husks get sliced and diced instead of studying for college placement exams. Head first, spaceman! One of the guys shouted, and everyone finally turned back to the show. More laughter. The girls were particularly shrill about it. The spindles sliced deeper and claimed more of the body. The bot's legs were high, like a counter-lever to the succumbing torso. Look at that action, Riz said. But you won with that bot, Trent protested, fully wincing now. Riz's gaze remained on the slicing. Yeah, but it got beat twice. When a racehorse was done in ancient times, they'd put it out to pasture. Yeah, if they were breeders, twags. Most got a more, shall we say, abrupt ending. Time for a new bot, spaceman. Trent sought distraction and found motion beyond the shredder mouth. Loderbots had basic human attributes. Central core with two legs, arms, four instead of two, however, and a head that was just a powerful light bulb beside a camera lens for visual input. No facial features. At precise intervals, they pulled other bots from a pile, placed them on the slow-moving belt and extracted the salvageable parts. These images weren't much better than the shredders. It was practically cannibalism. Bots don't have feelings, Trent reminded himself just programmed responses. Conclusion. Robot destruction, a.k.a. recycling, was death not his thing. Other conclusions. Instead of this, he should have surfed in the beach park or ion-boarded over the cratered surface of the moon beyond the bubbles. And in the grander scheme, he should have remained in strata with kids his own age. He and Gwen had talked about it. She told him it was too late now. He might as well keep pursuing the higher classes. She was a pain sometimes, but it would be cool if they could wrap it out again. But she was 33 million miles away now, and that was Mars at its closest. He did wonder what it would be like to ironboard over the Martian surface before Skona tried to kickstart the cores with the thermobombs. How to get there was problematic. His death would be the last time he clustered with Gwen's group. Riz was cool, but kids were pulled into his orbit like asteroids around the sun. Trent was the opposite. The more people on a scene, the more he got eclipsed. The older brother of one of the teens, Trent wasn't sure which, was the operator of the Recycle Shredder station. He sat on a raised control chair with a hologram of buttons and controls around him. Trent had felt his calculating gaze, and now the guy tapped a hollow button. The screech of rending metal was replaced by an ominous hum as the shredders halted, 
and waited to start again. He told himself not to look down into the pit, but that just guaranteed he'd look. His eyes widened at the sight of the all-but-consumed head and torso of the body. The legs were grotesquely extended upward now, toward the conveyor that was bringing the next victim. "'Friend of yours in there, kid?' the operator chided. If they could smoke in the recycling sector, Trent was sure this guy would whip out a tube and start vaping. "'Don't be such a wuss, Wagner.' Not like Gwen. She's got lady balls. The blood rushed to Trent's face and knew he wanted to tell them to shut up, but it would come out weak. He again searched for distraction. The loader bots were in motion. What they did maybe was not bot cannibalism per se, but at least bot treachery. How many are you gonna kill? Trent said quietly. The operator's lips pursed in contemplation, or maybe he was surprised Trent said anything at all. Kid, the parts worth keeping are harvested by the time we get them. The solar flare two Earth days ago cut down a dozen of them while working the bones of Ma Street. The intake crew plasma blasts them to get the nastiness out. By the time we get them, they are dead on arrival. Mars Orbiter 3 was in its early framework stage. Graphene-coated steel girders reached outward from a central core to form the lower outline of a skeletal circle. Space favours the orb. So like its predecessors already in position around Mars, atomizing and molecular bonding two tunnels to the cores in preparation for detonation event, Mars 3 was destined to become a manufactured mini-moon. People and drones by the thousands were working on it. Of course the bots weren't alive, but they were sometimes a bit too human-like, though most worker drones were straight alloy and not plexi-skin for that very reason. People tend to get attached to the ones with faces. These had been space androids, and though bipedal and human-shaped, they were exposed to the harshness of space beyond the domes. That means all the radiation and frigid temperatures over time for a steady grind or sudden incidents like accidents and the solar flares that had put this group down. The next bot was laid upon the belt. It had steel rods for arms and legs, wires poking out its chest cover, and the conical light bulb that was its head was turned toward the control booth. Deep at the centre of the bulb glowed a vague dot of red. Hang on, would you? Trent said. Nah, spaceman, these gotta get shredded. The operator checked the monitor for the identification chip. Skona doesn't pay me to let these sit around. Trent hurried out of the control room, down the stairs and into the processing pod. One of the androids turned toward him but let him pass, as was their directive. With a grunt, he pulled the robot off the conveyor belt and it crashed to the floor. They were steel-framed after all. Despite the dings and divots and peeled graphene, and Skona's artificial gravity mimicked Earth's. It was a couple hundred pounds easy. More than Trent weighed by sixty pounds. The arms were stiff at its side. In the control booth he saw the others shaking their heads, laughing, flirting with one another. Then sounds joined to motions as the intercom squelched on, 
Ah, uh, they're not free, you know, the operator remarked blandly, his voice slightly less bored now. How much? This part, at least, he had anticipated. How much you got? Apparently that was also funny to everyone. Ten credits, Wagner grunted, heaving upward. The bot could sort of stand on its legs, though at an angle, since one foot was completely gone at the ball-peg ankle. He lifted the chest panel, hit the power switch off and on. The tiny glow solitary lamp lens of the head did not waver, despite his actions. The camera lens beside was a small dark eye. It's still got power, Wagner observed. It's just leaking auxiliary juice from the chest board, kid. Power packs to the main body are pulled and recycled separately. You can have that junk for 30 creds. Wagner did a quick inventory. 20 and I get a foot, replacement connectors, and another power source. From the good boxes. Have you been snorting asteroid dust? 25 with all those parts. None of them are new, spaceman. Shop new, then. 25, Trent offered. Most entertainment I've had all week. All right, swipe it. Trent left the droid's side and reached for the sensor pad on the wall. He punched in the number and held the card up. The indicator light turned green. A crash behind him made him start. Laughter reinforced his suspicion as to the cause. The droid was on its back on the floor, the bulb staring up at the ceiling with that faded red glow. With a grunt, Trent started to pull it back up, then rested it on the floor again. The reality of his impulse move was setting in. He wasn't exactly handy with tools and parts. Riz knocked on the glass, showing teeth again. What are you going to do, Twags? Fix it up and take me on in the foot race? Every two weeks, Skona held a robot race outside the domes on the moon's native surface. No ion flying allowed. One race for treads, one for bipedal. Anyone under the age of 21 could enter their bot. Skona used it to promote innovation and engineering, and some entertainment. What started as a small local event had grown into a large viewership on the Galaxy Net and specialised broadcasts on Earth. It fell somewhere between sports and do-it-yourself repair shows. Riz's bots had won several times over the last couple of years. I don't know. Maybe, Trent said, more of a defensive reaction than any real intention. It can't even stand on that peg, much laughter. Trent eyed one of the open memory slots and addressed the operator. Five more for a good memory stick. Free if you enter that space junk in the next race, the shredder operator said. Apparently this capped the evening's humour extravaganza. Even Riz couldn't control it this time. His face flushed. Trent knelt beside his new banged-up bot. It had been on the verge of destruction, yet still had the slight red glow in the bulb. A flame of possibility flickered in his mind. Up in the booth, the others quieted, watching him. Trent stood. I'll do it if you toss in an air dolly to get it home. 
The train barely shook as it moved through two miles of a titanium-meshed plexiglass tunnel that connected the second manufacturing dome to Skona Central. The latter served as both hub and heart of the network of domes, laid out in a star schema. The hub afforded connections to all the endpoint domes, including the welcoming ports, commercial and private, and the other manufacturing, residential and entertainment domes. Why not just have one city beneath a single dome? Redundancy was Skona's mantra. Segmentation was its tagline. Trent's train was headed toward the second residential dome. Below, broad white stretches of lunar surface flowed by. Overhead, the sun's rays were captured by solar filaments and generated electricity, enough to power the generators of the primary heaters and ventilation. A graceful arc in the tube led to the rise of the final dome, glinting in the sunlight. This was the outermost limit of the colony. Here the moon's surface was still marked by half-darkened craters of size. The grounds around the domes themselves had been smoothed by human activity, but the larger craters remained. Beyond the dome, valleys, ridges and boulders were constant attractions. Groups of solar buggies ran out here at all hours of the day, as well as ion-board riders and hikers in spacesuits who used their spacesuit jets now and then to scale the cliffs or carry them farther away. Trent glanced out the window, but his gaze kept returning to the bot. The dolly used ion jets to transport its cargo in a supine position, but at rest it was upright and tilted back on sturdy support legs. Trent stood with one hand on the train's support bar and the other on the shoulder of his unanticipated project. It was the middle of the second shift, so the available seats were only sporadically occupied. The train slowed and stopped. He disembarked and received several curious glances as he walked beside the supine bot through the main and then the feeder hallways. Upon arrival at his home pod, a neighbour's door slid open. A kid about his own age strutted out, sleeveless shirt displaying well-formed arms. The guy made a sour face at Trent and the bot between them. Found a friend, Wagner? Rod the bot said. Yeah, something like that. Stellar. That bumps the total up to one reject. Why don't you step outside and inhale some fresh space, meathead? The punch darted over the supine bot and landed on Wagner's bony shoulder. It hurt, but he didn't let on. Rod grinned. Look what you did! Trent's arm went out as well, but not of his own volition. The dolly lurched sideways and pulled Trent along with it, forcing him to take a step or lose his balance. The machine shoved Rod the bod back against the wall and pressed against his midsection. He tried pushing it away, but the dolly didn't budge. Get it off me, fool! Trent's eyes widened. He hadn't directed the dolly to do anything. After a moment of amazement and a little satisfaction, he pulled the directional lever toward himself. Maybe it was his imagination, but for a moment the bot's head bulb glowed brighter. Finally, the dolly followed Trent's order and drifted slowly away from the other team.
Rod the Bod's face was red from exertion. Do it again and I'll wreck you, twags. But I didn't. You heard me. With a final glare, Rod the Bod moved down the hall, away from the dolly and the bot, and best of all, away from Trent. After a moment to ponder, he concluded it had been some unconscious movement on his own part, or a short circuit in the dolly. The thing wasn't in much better condition than the load it carried. He turned to the retina reader of his pod, and it scanned him for entrance. After the door slid inside the wall, he directed the dolly and its airborne load inside. Now where would one attempt bot repair? Mom would not be cool with the living room or kitchen. The tile of his bedroom was better suited against possible drips. He removed the area rug and threw down some plastic area sheets he had used when working on his boards, then had the dolly lay the bot down. Trent positioned it so its upper body was propped against the wall and legs were out straight. Behind it was a large poster of a surfer shredding the gnar at an earth beach. Its task complete, the dolly turned and headed for the door. Trent got up and led it out. The dolly vanished into the hallway and the door closed. Back in his bedroom, he reached for the used power pack. Its indicator eye was also red. He plugged it into the wall socket and was satisfied that the red light faded in and out now. Real juice is on the way, Batman, Trent said over his shoulder. After a moment, he turned and scrutinised the bot. The dented cover over the chest cavity central processor wasn't a huge deal, but he could see now the entire body had once had armour, not just the chest. The barren steel framework was pitted and weakened where the coating had been stripped by the solar flares. Its structure was much too weak to walk and wield the framework of Mars 3 and the ball stub at the end of its leg had been sheared in half. Bot appendages were snap-ready by design. Soldering with hot irons was not permitted inside living quarters in space. If you couldn't snap, splice and reconnect, it generally wasn't allowed, and Skona sent constant mind texts about using caution, backed up by legions of thermal detectors. The stub fit easily into the receiving socket of the new foot, but without the full circle of steel to form the ball joint, there was not enough catch to the fitting, and the foot pulled off with an easy tug. Not great. Taking the bot to a repair shop would disqualify him from the race, but maybe he didn't need to. He pulled a small utility bin from his closet. From his iron-board project, he had several leftover cubes of graphene steel and pills of solving agent. Not enough steel to create the entire half of the ball joint, but maybe he could improvise a bit. He wrapped aluminium foil around the half ball joint, used the salad tongs from the kitchen to hold the cube of graphene after placing one of the solving pills on top. Tiny bubbles formed on the surface of the cube and an acrid smell rose. Drops of liquefied graphene landed on the aluminium, seeping into the cracks and forming a coat around it. He used the back of a wooden spoon to smooth it over, did his best to coat the ball evenly. It was imperfect, but maybe it had a chance. It only took a few minutes to harden and dry. After it did, 
He pushed the foot and its receiving socket against the improvised ball. It went on and stayed on, even after manipulating it. Screeched a little, but seemed to move okay otherwise. A few more drops of graphene sealed the ankle. Grunting, he hauled the bot up to a standing position and worked the legs into a stable position. The legs were stiff as no hydraulics were circulating, but the foot at least held the weight. Statue status achieved. One small step for a bot, he murmured, emulating Neil Armstrong's Apollo 11 saying, over 200 years old now. Six displayed no expression. It had a small head, really. Beside the conical bulb, a small oval box was attached to the rods of the metal spine. The cover was easy to open, and exposed an array of empty memory slots. Trent only had the one memory stick. He plugged it into one of the bays and closed the box. Between the bulb and the memory case was the camera lens. From it, snaking wiring that ran down the spine to the chest power pack. The faint red glow in the bulb seemed like an eye, almost regarding him, which was crazy since it was the camera lens next to the bulb that would be responsible for visual processing. Trent blinked. He needed to get busy. While present, the glow was fading. The universal warning colour was never optimal when it came to machinery. Even Mars, the focus of Skona's core tunnelling and ultimate terraforming efforts, held a natural warning with its colouring. Lifeless. Dangerous. Six's torso wiring wasn't as bad as Trent had initially feared, and he actually knew a couple of things about it from his old science kits. He swapped out a few connectors and leads, and according to his meter was rewarded with a closed circuit. So yeah, he knew something about wiring. Not really optimistic, but figuring he might as well continue, he unplugged the battery charger and snapped the power source in the main slot on the bot's chest. The battery icon on the surface was filled in to roughly 70%. Ought to be more than enough. Trent waited for the bot to come online. The tiny body lights should illuminate and even verbal acknowledgement from the speaker. Instead, the red dot in the head bowl began to shrink. No, 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 ah, uh, come on, Batman. After a few moments of checking connections, Trent sat hard and blew out a long breath. The circuit board had suffered too much damage, evidently. He sat the bot down with its back against the wall once more, and legs extended before it. His attempt at the foot connection looked desperate. He groaned and squeezed his temples. What the flying space snakes was he doing? Foot race? He doubted the appendage would stay on after three strides. His computation and analysis abilities didn't help a lot for the situation. Maybe it would be best to have the bot hang around him like a suit of armour, after all. It would look frosty and that way he wouldn't have to try, or fail. Somebody else was better at this. Somebody else always was. Riz, for instance. This bot would likely join his pile of abandoned projects. The homemade surfboard, ironboard, hollow projector, solar garden. 
It wasn't that they were completely inoperable, but they weren't first or even really second rate either. The ones for sale were always light years better. So what was the use? Trent leaned back against the wall across from the bot. He picked up a wrench and tapped it against his palm. Who was he kidding? The stupid machine would end up right back at the recycle bin. Catch! Trent lobbed the wrench at it. A functioning bot could easily snatch the tool. This wrench just struck the bot's power pack and tumbled lamely to the floor. The red light in the bulb vanished. Great move, twags, he muttered. Now it's really dead. A cone of light suddenly burst forth from the bulb, blinding him. His hands rose to shield it off. Hey, what? Cut it out! The light blast narrowed progressively. Then the white light split into a dancing palette of coloured laser threads. What? Trent murmured. Images flooded the hollow. The vibrations pointed toward a human point of view. Military training, army. Lots of yelling from drill instructors with bulging neck veins. Lots of physical conditioning. Combat training with live-fire plasma rifles. Entries and exits from various transportation, including ion jet power from backpacks. A drill instructor yelled in the face of the host for doing handstand push-ups instead of regulation push-ups. A scroll of dictated sentences rolled beneath the images. The D.I. kept addressing the recipient of his ire as the number six, as in, Did Six think the United States Army was his personal playground? Well, surely all the members in the platoon would like to play with Six in his special playground. What's that, Six? Push-ups instead? And regular Holy Galactic Cosmos push-ups at that? Well, by all means, tell your fellow platoon members to drop with you and pump out fifty! Nicknames were popular with D.I.s in boot camp, apparently. The image changed. An email from Jana Franzix to Asa Franzix with words about children and please, please, please be safe. Another image change. A group of soldiers dotted a barren landscape, rifles kicking bursts of plasma bullets toward a walled fortification built against a rocky rise. Dust and rock exploded and melted all around them. The view narrowed to take aim with the viewer's rifle. Several rounds spat out, and large chunks of the walls blobbed out of existence. The nearest soldier shouted as incoming rounds melted desert rock and sand around them. Six! Go, go, go! The hollow's point of view bobbed up and down, legs running legs, while flashing bursts lit up the end of the rifle. The images grayed, then faded into darkness. A woman's face appeared, mouthing words he could not hear. Two children climbed on him. The laser beams altered to show new images. Back on the combat field, Six's sleeve was on fire. He rolled on the ground to snuff it as rounds burst around him. Two of his fellow soldiers were hit and died instantly. Another was wounded. He shouted for medics, shouts to keep moving. 
he returned fire, crawled to the wounded soldier. He went down again and again, crawled, fired, crawled again. The rifle tip flashed and the scene briefly jumped with each shot he took. He picked up the soldier and ran toward a boulder. The battlefield faded to a home somewhere safe. Yana's face again, older, some grey. He held her as they stood and looked out at a mountain range, she in his arms. Another shift, a dinner table. The children were adults now. One had a spouse and a baby. In the backyard, the kids were trying headstands. They turned and laughed as Six's viewpoint upended. The ground was up and the sky was down, and moving as Six walked on his hands. When the view went normal, the kids gleefully dove upon his chest. And then the hollow stopped. Asa Francis never gave up and had made it out. Trent pursed his lips, then stood. Stand up, Six. The bulb turned 180 degrees left, then all the way round to the right. The camera seemed to be taking impressions. The fingers slowly turned to one side, then the other, then fixed upon Trent again. Suddenly, it leaped to its feet. Whoa! Trent said. The light in the bulb was now green, as was the indicator light on the bot's chest. Arm out, Trent said, thrusting his own to the side. Repeat my actions. Trent moved his limbs, twisted, and the bot emulated. All right. Now, small ups and downs, like this. Trent performed some light squats. Again, the bot mimicked without difficulty. Belly down, then push up into a surfer position. The bot could be riding waves. Trent laughed, raised his rear hand for some flair. The steel man also raised his hand. Okay, okay, cool. Now, bigger stuff. Jog in place, lightly, this way. Trent jogged, knees up. This would impact the ankle joint hard for the first time. Six did but the grating noise from the point of attachment wasn't great. He didn't notice the front door open and the approaching steps. This is interesting, Dr. Wagner said, standing in Trent's doorway. She was in her gym clothes, her white lab coat partially protruded from the bag she now placed on the floor. Know anything about fixing bot feet, Doc? Trent said. Not since med school. Genetics is a little different from orthopedics, honey. Well, I know 100% more than I did two hours ago, and I don't think that's going to be enough to really fix his foot. Okay. Hey, don't get bot fluids on the floor. Hence the plastic. She came closer and took it all in. Okay, good. So what are your plans for the tin man here? Gwen's friends joked me about the foot race. Told him I would, but it's probably a tragedy waiting to happen. She paused and nodded. Why not give it a try? Think you can split your time with studying? Not sure placing out of the next physics level is best. The Tin Man is like my only buddy since Gwenbeld. She regarded him before answering. You want to get to Mars before detonation event, right? They take vacationers, but not on our budget.
I got it the first 10,000 times, Mom. Okay, well, at least you're trying something. Finish the studies and apply for a job on one of the orbiters. That's how you get to Mars. Sounds so easy. It's not. You just need to get the build going. She went to her room, and then the bathroom. He heard the burst and hiss of spray misters as she showered. Back to the effort here. Trent wondered if drizzling more graphene on the ankle would stiffen the joint too much. It wouldn't come off as easily, though. He applied a thin coating and had Six test the movements, up and down, side to side. To his amazement, the foot worked fine, with only a small squeaking noise now. All right, let's test a little more. He and Six walked, then jogged side by side through the corridors. The knees and hips and shoulders all squeaked. He'd need to do some greasing. Trent nodded, if nothing else, that at least made it this far. As they slowed a few apartments before the door to home, Rod the Bod approached. Hey, fool, he called to Trent. Got some payback for you. The Bod closed in and Six took a step forward. Its arms were at its side, but it blocked the path to Trent, whose brows rose in surprise. Not unwelcome, though. Bod tried to sidestep to get to his prey, but was thwarted each time, then was forced to back up as the mechanical man edged forward. Yeah, never mind, Bod said. He turned to the retina reader of his apartment and tapped the wall. As soon as the door slid open, he vanished. Thanks, spaceman, Trent said to Six. The bot's joints squeaked and grated as it followed Trent inside. Race time. Trent hardly slept, but didn't feel all that tired. Wired was more like it, and he'd only had one cup of coffee. Good thing he'd uploaded the course layout to six the night before, because with this continuous flock of butterflies swirling in his stomach, he'd probably have sent six charging down to Tycho Crater. Decreasing the volume on the Space One broadcast announcers and the audience noise linked in from the Skona Convention Centre here on the moon helped calm his nerves. A little bit, anyway. He told himself he was star-shined. He wasn't doing the running, after all. Six was. Trent was one of a dozen racer managers, teenagers and a couple preteens who had certified upon penalty of disqualification and public humiliation that they had built or salvaged their races without assistance from human or bot. Mom had cleaned his sporty red and grey spacesuit and wished him luck, so Team Twags had that going for them as they rolled away from the hub dome in the long open roof transport carrier along with the other participants. Soon they turned off the smooth roadway and onto native ground. There wasn't much chatter other than some half-hearted trash talk. Everyone knew Team Riz would likely win again, including Riz. Pitching from side to side over the increasingly uneven terrain, the transport rover rolled to a stop a short distance from the starting line. They disembarked, and as a loose group walked the moon's trampled surface. Trent glanced at the other bots while approaching the starting line. Six definitely had the least amount of body plates, other than his chest and hips, all his steel rods, pressure tubes and hosing were visible, 
especially when compared to Riz's fully plated bot. Trent was a little fearful of Six being exposed to the solar winds, but there'd been no time or money to get more body plates. Hopefully you wouldn't suffer too much damage. It, Trent amended, it, not he. Then again, with those memory flashes and impulses, maybe a partial he. Riz flashed that ever-confident smile and walked over, his bot gleaming in the sun and keeping pace alongside him. He said he was glad Trent could make it, but of course Six was soon going to be eating his bot's moon dust. Six moved in front of Riz's bot, and they had the equivalent of a mechanical stare-down. "'What's this about, Twags?' Riz said. "'Not sure,' Trent said. "'Latent bio-impulses?' "'They're supposed to reformat all the memory sticks,' Trent shrugged. A reporter drew Riz aside for some words. His bot turned and followed. After another check to make sure they were linked to one another, Trent peered at Six closely. Are you in there, Asa Francis? Six was silent. With the bot alongside, Trent moved to position at the starting line. He and Six performed jumping jacks on the lunar surface near the starting line. He didn't know if this helped circulate the hydraulics for the bot or not, but it felt like a reasonable pre-race activity if only for the distraction. Dust kicked up beneath them and settled back down when they stopped after twenty reps. Didn't want to risk the ankle too much. This was the bright side of the moon, where the surface was smoother than the crater-riddled dark side. That said, two craters were included as part of the elliptical three-mile track the bots had to traverse. Flat surface running was one thing, dashing down across and out of pond-sized craters was another. A dozen bots lined up at the starting poles, a neon-yellow ribbon stretched in front of them. Announcers on the public links were talking it up hard now, and someone had raised the audience noise in the background. Trent swallowed as he fastened the official race transmitter band around Six's steel biceps. Ready, spaceman? The headbulb held a steady green centre as it turned from the gathering races and settled squarely upon Trent. It then turned down to the footprint-caked surface. Lasers sprang forth from the bulb to create an image of an eagle soaring high among unnamed mountains. Trent's eyes widened. Well, all right then. Let's race. The mechanical arm extended, the hand in a thumbs-up position. Trent laughed a little and returned the gesture. Wish I had your call. Six pivoted and took a starter crouch at the starting line. Racer managers to the observation deck, someone said. Along with Riz and a dozen other young women and men, Trent walked to the raised dais at the finish line. The starter tree was a light pole, a throwback to dragster races. The higher section was steady red then went black as the next section down went yellow, then the next, and the next until the very last section went solid green. Go! The bots shot forward, kicking up moon dust and shredding the ribbon. Aided by the weak gravity, the mechanical herd flew short distances with each stride. Riz's bot in particular ran with precision and grace, 
one leg fully outstretched, the other fully extended behind them, until the next impact. It broke from the pack and pulled to the lead. In contrast, Six was wobbly at the back of the pack and started to fall behind. Trent had a sinking feeling it would be over for them a quarter mile down the first stretch. But then the bot compensated and straightened out. His, its, upper body moved in unison with an increasingly long human-like gait. Out a mile and into the first turn, Six closed in on the pack. But the group itself began to alter. One, then another bot fell in a dusty heap. One was stone still, the other wriggled and writhed. Neither continued. Six avoided them and had to leap over another that fell and tumbled in a dusty sprawl. Trent's hopes began to build, despite himself. He held his breath as the racers rounded the first turn and attacked the straightaway. Six moved with purpose, but something was different. Trent zoomed in with the helmet lens and swallowed hard. A slight angle had returned to Six's gait, but perhaps it would get no worse. Still the bot ran, once again compensating and keeping up with the pack. The racers ran down the side of the first crater, were visible only with the overhead drone cams, then raced up the other side, trailing a cloud of moon dust. Trent started. In his ears the crowd noise surged. The announcers shouted. Six has taken the lead. For a quarter mile, time seemed to slow. Trent stared in amazement for a moment, then remembered to cheer his racer on. Riz's bot emerged from the pack. Stride after sprinting stride, it closed the gap with six until the two bots ran alongside one another. There were machines running on the surface of the moon, with the sun over their shoulders and the shadows racing behind them. Riz looked over at Trent, his eyes wide with surprise. Six again tilted away from the compromised right leg and allowed the left to do more work. Around the second turn, the two bots sped, kicking up moon dust in the faces of the pack. Steadily, however, Six's gait became more stringent, and its upper body took on a harsh emotion. The foot turned inwardly now, and the prints in the moon's surface attested to such, until the others trampled them away. Still Six pressed on, though Riz's bot pulled away, and the others caught and passed it. The next straightaway found Six at the rear of the pack, with a discernible wobble to the foot as the leg rose and fell. Trent watched, dread filling his belly. Six took another stride. On the back kick the foot flew high in the thin atmosphere and spun like a planetoid. The bot ran with just the peg, which bit deep into the ground before pulling free, slowing the machine. The audience cried out, the announcers seized giddily upon the event. Six tried to keep up with the others, but they pulled away. Trent started to send instructions for the bot to halt and reattach the foot, then stopped. The appendage would just come off again. Six tripped and went down. Through their shared link, Trent called out to the sprawled form, now alone on the track. Trent examined his race's diagnostics via his arm computer. Everything appeared functional but the foot. The bot clawed at the surface, and for a moment Trent wondered if he, it, was in pain. 
It's all right, Six, Trent said. We gave it a shot. Hold on, I'll come get you. As if in rebuttal, the bot lurched up and stood, searching. It limped quickly to the foot and reattached it. The head bulb turned toward Trent, then to the group of racers down the track. Six sprang forward, took three strides before the foot flew off again. Six kept going. The peg leg bit into the surface several times before the body succumbed. Again, it sprawled on the ground. It repeated this again and again. Trent looked away, then thought how lame a reaction that was. His racer needed help. He scoured his mind for options, and found one. Moving away from the others, Trent's fingers worked the keypad of his arm computer as he issued commands to his bot. Out at the track, the dust-covered bot halted. The large bulb turned from the other racers to centre upon his manager. After a quick wave, Trent placed his hands on the floor and swung his legs up high. He overshot and hit the floor on his back, scrambled to try again. With help from the moon's lighter gravity, he was able to walk on his hands a few paces before crumbling in a heap. He popped his head up to find his bot. Too bad, one announcer said. Looks like Team Twags is out of the race. Hey, play that again, responded the other. Was race manager Trent Wagner hand-walking? He was. And look at racer six. The compromised bot leapt high with arms extended, as if to dive into the moon. He landed on his hands, palms flat and arms fully outstretched. Effortlessly, Six held a handstand. Exclamations from the crowd and announcers. For a moment, Six remained perfectly balanced, legs over torso, one with a foot and one ending in a peg. The bulb head turned backward further than any human could perform until it could see through its arms down the length of the racecourse. Go! Trent shouted. Six burst forward. It scrambled, flinging moon soil and dust as it ran on its hands. Down the stretch and into the next crater, it ran on its hands, arms reaching, pulling and pushing off with robot strength and speed. The steel rods of its arms blurred. The fingertips flung dust high behind it. Faster and faster, Six's arms propelled it toward the pack of other racers. More of them stumbled, went down and did not rise. Going into the final turn, only five remained. Coming out of it, the lead was held by Riz's bot and the hand-running Six. Riz's bot had speed and powerfully long strides and left the surface a second at a time. Graceful, amazing to watch, but when not in contact with the surface, it did not generate speed. Six matched that length with three push-offs, but remaining grounded enabled it to gain on the leader. Metal hands were practically on the heels of Riz's bot when they crossed the finish line. Riz's bot tore through the checkered ribbon stretched across the track. Six crossed next, and soon came the others. The audience roared in the ear microphones of Trent's helmet. The announcers kept up a stream of wonderment and rulebook checking. There was nothing in the rulebook to disqualify Six. Trent sprang from the manager dais and ran down to his machine, who finally stopped. Six saw Trent, swiveled on its shoulders, placed the good foot and then the peg down, then stood upright.
Trent couldn't help but laugh while clapping Six on its hard shoulders. He couldn't recall the last time he actually laughed out loud, and now he could barely contain it. When Six gave him the thumbs up, he laughed even harder. Riz's bot went to the winner podium, where he collected his next medal and waved to the audience and cameras. Trent applauded him, then turned with Six toward the rover that would take them to the train station. As they settled in a seat, Riz mind-texted him from the winner's podium. Good work, Twags. Trent texted back. Thanks. Congrats on another win. Someone retrieved Six's foot and gave it to him. Trent held on to it and settled back as other managers boarded the rover and congratulated him and his bot. Later that night, he and his mother dined with a hollow of Gwen at the Galaxy restaurant. You and Six crushed it, little space bro, Gwen said. It was exciting. Great job, son. Karen Wagner toasted Trent with her wine glass and Gwen followed suit from 40 million miles away. It was all six, really, Trent said. Why, you saved his metal butt from the scrap heap and tipped him toward the hand running, Gwen said. Riz told me about the recycle unit. So weird, Trent said. Harsh with the shredder, yeah. Truth, but not what I meant. It's weird. Six's memories of his biological life as a soldier and a space engineer, Trent said. He hollowed footage of some events. Training, battlefield, wife and children, then grandchildren. Are you sure? Karen Wagner said. I call him Six, but his full name is Asa Francis. Fascinating and disturbing, Dr. Mom said. Let's look into it some more when we get back to the living pod. So what do you think of getting back to your placement exams for early college? Trent frowned. I don't know. Why am I rushing through? A lean man in old-style black jeans and a simple collared shirt looked over at Trent from the nearby bar. He had grey starting in his close-cut hair a scar slashing through one brow and a gaze that was both keen and a little weary. He came over and Trent's eyes widened. The man extended his hand. Congrats on the race, Trent Wagner. Thanks. But who are you? Trent said, shaking with him. Rye Evans. Was the co-pilot of PS4 from Mars 1. On ice for now. Ice? Yeah. Shuttled in from Mars 2 after PS4 exploded. Evaluation stuff. Didn't mean to eavesdrop, but it's just me and a beer and lab pretzels on that stool. What name was that associated with your bot? I'm X-Mill. I can run a quick check in the database. Trent repeated it. Interesting. Well, you and your lovely mom and Holosis continue with your dinner and I'll run this. He returned to the bar stool took a swig of beer, then his fingers danced on the keypad of his arm computer. Gwen's hollow eyes were large. You guys! First Officer Devons is famous out here at Mars Space. Ten minutes later, he left the bar stool and walked up to their table. Sorry to interrupt again. Not at all, Karen Wagner said. Trent noted the smoothness of her invitation. 
He could understand why. She had been at odds with Dad for a long time before they finally split. Asa Francis was in the 12th Infantry Division, Ion Fight Brigade. Later, an infrastructure engineer in the private sector. He worked here on the moon for Schoner until an accident took his life. He must have used one of the portable memory sticks now in your bot as a memory backup. Yeah, I was thinking the same, Trent said. Devins nodded. His widow is Yana. She's on Earth. She posted on social media that she's not well. I'm thinking, well, she might appreciate having a version of Six around. Trent looked away. You mean give him up? Maybe just the memory stick? She could upload the rest to a computer. Trent pulled a deformed memory stick from his pocket. It got damaged in one of his falls. The impulses and images he displayed would be imprinted in the core processor. The part of him that remains is part of the machine now. Ghost in the machine, Gwen said. And the entire machine would need to go to Yana Francis. Entirely your call, Devon said. Trent gazed through the transparent wall to the stars shining beyond. Six is... a friend now. Karen nodded and looked up at Devon's. It's been difficult on Trent since Gwen's been away. Won't you sit with us? Thanks, but I got another psych test to fake my way through. The women laughed. Trent was deep in thought. I'll do it, he said finally. I'll send six on the next Earth shuttle. Devons nodded in appreciation. Well, look, Skona wants me to take a couple of weeks off down on Earth. I'll travel with six. That way I can explain a little of the weirdness. They all agreed. By the way, the announcers said this was your first race, Devons said. Yeah, first one. You did really well. We didn't win, Trent said. No, but you and Six competed. Didn't give up when it looked bad. That's a personal win. Plus you showed innovation. Trent nodded. I guess so. Thanks. Devons tilted his head and arched his good brow. It made his piercing gaze somewhat more disturbing until he smiled. Hey, if I make it through all the tests... I'm going to try and pull a shuttle crew together for a cosmic ton of Mars runs before detonation event. Are you interested in the Red Planet? Trent's eyes widened. Truth? I'm pre-astrophysicist, if that's a thing. My brother's a bit gifted academically, First Officer Devons, Gwen said, smiling at Trent. Then why don't you fill out an application? Mars 1. Right, Evans. I'll set up an alert. I still have school, though. We can intern your part-time if your core classes are completed. What's a reasonable estimate on how long would that take? Trent looked at his mother and sister, who watched him closely. Maybe only a year, if I really hit it. Give you nine months, Devon said with a grin. He touched Karen's shoulder. Don't worry, I'll take care of your baby. He'll only be an average of a 130 million miles away. Well, my baby was in a holding pattern until now. Just make sure he doesn't fall into those core tunnels, Karen said. If he does, I'll go in after him, Devons promised. A year later, 
They both did just that. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And there you go. Don't forget, copyright is John's. John, thank you so much indeed, sir. Tom, always a pleasure, like I say, always a pleasure. Come on, get some more. Never mind gaming, man. Man, are you all right? Eh? Put that down. <laughs> get on the mic, lad. Get on the mic. So next up is, it is, <laughs> here we go, Ims. Hello, my friends. It is time for another look back into genre history. It is time for me to get medieval on this segment. And it is not the first time that I've gotten medieval here, but it is the first time that I've talked about medieval China. And I am excited and delighted to recommend a new publication that is highly relevant to the topic of proto-science fiction, and I'll explain why in just a bit. But the book that I want to talk about today, this new collection is, or new translation of an old collection, depending on how you think about it, Hidden and Visible Realms, Early Medieval Chinese Tales of the Supernatural and the Fantastic. This is compiled originally by Lu Yiqing. This Edition is edited and translated by Jinjun John, published by Columbia University Press, 2018. Reading this book has been a joy and an education, thanks in part to the wonderful annotations that are included by John. So what is this book exactly? It is a translation, recreation in a way, and annotation of Lu Yiqing's Hidden and Visible Realms. This was one of the most important collections of Zigwai, or Accounts of Anomalies, or Tales of the Supernatural, in early medieval China, or the Six Dynasties period. So we're talking that era of 220 to 589 in the Common Era. 
These accounts of anomalies, or tales of the supernatural, were originally written as, and read as, history. There was not a distinction made at the time between history and fiction. Some collections did have a particular idea or message or motive, um, such as those written to express and enhance the ideas and the themes and the messages of Taoism or Buddhism. In a sense, these collections were used to propagate, to get the, the message out about these faiths. But others were more general miscellaneous compendia, and that's what this particular book is. Also, many of the other collections share works that had already been published. They were essentially recombining stories or uh, reprinting stories. Again, Hidden and Visible Realms is different. Less than a quarter of the stories had appeared elsewhere. Most of them were new, and most of them reflect life during the time in which it was written. Most of the stories involve everyday people, scholars, commoners, Buddhist monks, laymen, old people, young people, spouses, mothers and fathers, people going about their daily lives. And so one of the really interesting aspects of this from a historical standpoint is that you're getting to see folklore, you're getting a, a view into oral tradition you're also getting a view into the daily lives of common people whose histories weren't necessarily part of the major narratives of the national story. Ordinary social life, material culture. We also see here that religion wasn't just for the elite, but the common people had religious beliefs and practices, and those changed and evolved over time. And the timing of this particular collection is, is also interesting because we can see Buddhist influence without these stories being intentionally Buddhist for the purposes of Buddhism. So, in other words, see how much that had permeated the public consciousness. Zhang points out that a lot of previous scholars have emphasized the historical import of these tales, but they haven't pointed out, A, that this is a useful look into early Chinese fiction, even though the Chinese of the time would not have considered it fiction, but mostly, and this is near and dear to my heart, these are important stories because they're really fun and interesting to read. In a way, and this is a broad and overstated comparison here, but in a way these are kind of the pulps of the time, uh, because they were not seen as highbrow literature, even if that concept had, had existed the way we think of it today. But if you think about the fact that the Analects tell us that Confucius did not speak of prodigies, force, disorder, and gods— in other words, uh, Confucianism stressed mundane practicalities and not imaginative, supernatural, unusual phenomena, right? These works were not held culturally in high regard. People read them because they were cool, right? And because they were telling weird stuff. And when you read these today in this collection, you can immediately see the appeal. So what is in it for us, those of us who love science fiction and are interested in the history of science fiction, proto-science fiction, speculative fiction of all kind? 
Besides great stories, well, I would say that's plenty. But I'd like to offer a few other thoughts. And here again, I'm drawing heavily from uh, the insights of the scholarly introduction. Scholar Carl Cow has observed that the supernatural and fantastic in the Chinese tradition differs from the same tradition in the West in three particular ways. First, in the Chinese tradition, the distinction between the supernatural and fantastic is mainly based on the kinds of facts recorded, not the creative process or intention of the author. And secondly, in the West, the fantastic comes later in part because of the kind of uneasy consciousness resulting from the loss of faith in unity in man and nature. Um, that's the way Cal puts it. I, putting on my hat, would say that in the Western context, this is the reason you had to have the scientific revolutions and the industrial revolution before you have Frankenstein and post-Frankenstein, that this rupture of faith and rupture in the connection between the human and nature brought about by the machine, these things have to happen to, as preludes to what we consider to be modern science fiction. So that's sort of my lens on what Cal was saying there. And third, and perhaps most importantly, the Chinese supernatural and fantastic never have the same experience of alienation from nature or the same kind of horror brought about by that alienation, or have the sort of psychological baggage for the characters from that alienation in the way that the Western tradition does. All that said, Jean, in his introduction, says uh, there's at least one really important commonality between the Zigwai and the Western tradition of fantastic literature, and that is an otherness in contrast to this human world and the general mundane ways we perceive it. Whatever this is, this is different. This is alien, right? These stories are wonderful, bite-sized, self-contained narratives. Some of them are only one paragraph long. Many of them are less than a page. Uh, the longest only run a handful of pages, but each does what it's meant to do, give you, quote-unquote, the facts, an account or history or report. Jean does a great job of giving us categories into which most of these tales fall. And you can see, I think, as I go through the list he gives us, how many of these might qualify as speculative fiction as proto-science fiction, certainly of interest to those of us who care about that tradition. The first category of these tales, other species, the supernatural beings. These might be deities, these might be ghosts, monsters, or immortals. Another kind of story, other spheres, the realms beyond the human world. This may be the heavens, it may be the underworld, it may be a different immortal land, overseas, somewhere else, a kind of lost world concept, or undiscovered exotic territories. There are also cross-boundary oddities like omens or 
strange metamorphoses, or even humans interacting with humanized animals. Lastly, human world oddities. This could be natural wonders or strange creatures, or even just uncanny marvels that can't be explained in ways we understand, such as becoming pregnant through a dream. There are also new anomalies that had not been seen in prior Zigwai collections that seem to appear in hidden and visible realms for the first time. A lot of these are related to Buddhism, showing that Buddhist thought was beginning to permeate the social consciousness. Uh, so things like karmic retribution or reincarnation or even uh, Buddhist magical arts. But there are others as well. The one I found most interesting, a detached dream soul that can wander separately from the human being and then return to the human host. I cannot recommend this enough. It's fascinating reading and it's a way of seeing another part of the global story of the development of speculative fiction. I'd like to end by reading one of the stories. It's very short, but it's one of my favorites. And again, I appreciate your patience with me, with my pronunciations. <laughs> this story is number 53 in the section denoted as A Garden of Marvels. Zhuge Zhangmen. After Zhuge Zhangmen died 317, became wealthy and noble, within approximately a month or several dozen days, he woke up startled at night and jumped around as if battling someone. Once, staying overnight with him, Mao Zaozi was stunned at this. Mao could not understand his behavior, but watched him for a long while. Zhang Min told him, This creature is extremely strong. Nobody could control it except me. Mao asked, What creature was it? Zhang Min said, I only saw a fairly black creature. Its arms and feet could not be clearly distinguished. Recently it came on several nights, and I fought with it. Naturally, I have been startled and terrified. In the house, snake heads were seen at the ends of all the pillars and rafters. Zhang Min ordered some people to tie knives onto sticks to cut them. The snake heads disappeared when the blade came near yet emerged again when the knife moved away. Finally, they wrapped all the ends of the pillars and rafters with paper, but it seemed that something was rustling inside the paper, resembling the sound of crawling. The End Sleep well tonight. All right, so I thoroughly enjoyed this collection and recommend it to you. Again, that is Hidden and Visible Realms, Early Medieval Chinese Tales of the Supernatural and the Fantastic, new from Columbia University Press. The chronology, introduction, and annotations are wonderful for the new or experienced reader of these kinds of tales, and the entire work is a great introduction to Zigwai. Accounts of Anomalies, or Tales of the Supernatural. I hope you've enjoyed this discussion of yet another chapter in the larger story of World SF, and I look forward to joining you again soon with something completely different when we take another look back into genre history. Thank you. Oh, man. The voice just soothes. Hear me, honestly, in this chaotic, hectic world we live in. 
You're just a little island of paradise. Thank you so much, lads. Yeah, honestly. Oh, it just calms the calms it down. Let's just get it back to normality. Do you know what I mean? It's like switching off your computer and switching it back on again. You know what I mean? Everything's back to normal. Ems, thank you. Honestly, thank you so much. So that is. That's a show. What number was it? I've forgotten already. Someone tell us there. It was 553. There you go. Can you see I'm getting a bit giddy for my holidays? Yes. Got to find that mankini and that, that cream and lather myself up there. So listen, until next week, look after yourselves and it's good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. I don't get out much. I've barely left the ground. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm moving, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon But the work is going slowly It won't get to you anytime soon Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you This signal's going light speed By the time I get my say I might already be on to you and on my way But you're so far from here And at best I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you I want to talk to you myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.